our program tonight is a grad student of Greg Mueller, and I've asked him to do the introductions. Thanks, Kathy. And yeah, I'm really um, pleased to, to introduce Willer Abchar Sims tonight. Uh, Willer came to us from Christopher Newport University, which is in Newport, Virginia, where she was a double major, environmental sciences and chemistry. Um, and she's now a second year student in the joint Chicago Botanic Garden Northwestern Program in Plant Biology and Conservation. So, um, and I won't tell you what Will is going to talk about because she's going to, to do that, but I think you're going to enjoy the program. Um, Will is making great progress and um, just excited to turn the program over to Will. Thank you, Greg. Uh, tonight, I'm going to be talking about assessing functionality of common mycelial networks, um, which a lot of people refer to as the wood wide web. So as, uh, as Greg said, um, I am Willow Abshire Sims. I graduated from Christopher Newport University in 2019, and I am now in the plant biology and conservation program uh, where I am a student of Dr. Greg Mueller. So before we delve into common mycelial networks and the wood wide web, let's take a look at some background info on a very important component of these networks, which is the mycorrhizal fungi. A basic but very important part of this understanding is what part of the fungus am I talking about? Um, I'm not talking about mushrooms, which we can see above ground. I'm talking about the underground mycelium. And mycelium is like the body of the fungus. It's the vegetative portion. And it consists of a mass of thread-like hyphae, um, which is what sporocarps or mushrooms are built out of and is where the fungus puts out new growth. Now the word mycorrhiza literally translates to fungus root and it's a mostly mutualistic association between plant roots and fungi in which the plant provides carbon to the fungus and the fungus gives greater access to soil nutrients and water. Um, it can protect the plant against pathogens. And in some situations, the mycorrhizal fungi can become a nutrient drain on the plant, but in general, this is, this is considered a mutually beneficial interaction. It's estimated that approximately 90% of vascular land plants associate with mycorrhizal fungi. And there are several major types of mycorrhizal fungi, um, which are ectomycorrhizal fungi, arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, orchid mycorrhizae, and aracoid mycorrhizae. One of the most well-known and widely distributed types of mycorrhizal fungi are arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. The hyphae of these fungi enter the host plant cortical root cells where they form distinctive structures known as arbuscules and vesicules. These are sites of exchange between the host plant and the fungus. This image on the right uh, shows the highly branched structure of an arbuscule. Um, they associate with a majority of land plants, and they're all found in the phylum Glomeromycota. Arbuscular fungi uh, do not form visible, visible sporocarps, and instead they produce thick-walled spores on hyphae outside of the root. Another major type of mycorrhizal fungi, and the type that my research focuses on, is ectomycorrhizal fungi. The hyphae of ectomycorrhizal fungi do not enter host plant cells 
and instead they form a distinctive structure known as a hardic net between the cells of the root, um, which is a site of exchange between the fungus and the host plant, like the arbustules in arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. Hyphae also forms a sheet sheath over the root, root tip, um, which will also often change root tip morphology of the plant. Um, this image in the top right shows the hardig net under a microscope um, with the darker fungal cells growing in between the plant cells, but not entering them. The bottom photo shows ectomycorrhizal root tips. Ectomycorrhizae associate with certain woody trees and shrubs and um, examples can be found in the families listed here as well as others. It's estimated that there are well over 10,000 species of fungi that form ectomycorrhizae. Um, and ectomycorrhizae uh, also produce visible sporocarps, some of which are highly valuable food resources. Um, so here are some ectomycorrhizal sporocarps that you may have eaten or may wish to eat if you get the chance. So now that we have some background knowledge, let's look into the mycorrhizal phenomenon known as the common mycelial network. The mycorrhizal fungi that associates with one plant is not limited to just that plant. It, it can extend mycelium out through the soil and infect the roots of another plant as well, um, which then connects those two plants into a common mycelial network. These networks can occur over large spatial spans like in a forest, or they can occur just between two plants, um, like a host plant and a mycoheterotroph. Within these networks, nutrients and signal molecules can transfer in between neighboring plants. Common mycelial networks can be formed from arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi or ectomycorrhizal fungi. Common mycelial networks formed by arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi may be important for prairie stability, um, and common mycelial networks formed by ectomycorrhizal fungi tend to occur in forests. Um, and these forest networks are commonly known as the wood wide web. Most studies regarding common mycelial networks occur on relatively small scales um, where they involve transfer between two seedlings or transfer between a hub tree and surrounding seedlings. Fungi can be a really mysterious topic, and the idea of trees talking to each other via fungi has led to some misconceptions. Some of these misconceptions involve exaggeration or extrapolation of current data. Many misconceptions also involve anthropomorphism, um, where we assign human feelings and intent to non-human entities. The idea of the mother tree may just be an indication of kinship, but it also evokes the idea of nurturing and motherly love. A lot of these misconceptions come from well-meaning but inaccurate metaphors. Metaphors can be a helpful tool for helping us understand unknowns, but it can also lead to misunderstanding when it's presented without an explanation or disclaimer. Here are some examples of some potentially misleading headlines of articles from various sources, including the BBC, Science, The New Yorker, and others. So why am I studying this? Uh, well, for one thing, on a personal level, I basically grew up in the woods. Um, I think it makes sense for me to return to the woods in my research. Um, as many people are, I was also inspired by the anecdotal accounts of common mycelial networks in books like The Secret Life of Trees and Mycelium Running. 
This subject is also the perfect intersection of two passions for me, botany and mycology. On a larger scale, it's also a bit of an understudied topic that I hope I can contribute to. And I think it's a really important uh, research topic for understanding forestry and forest ecology, especially in temperate zones. Now let's jump into the wood wide web. Um, the wood wide web is a popular term used to refer to common mycelial networks in a forest setting. It's sometimes used as a synonym for common mycelial networks, but not all common mycelial networks are a wood wide web. Um, this terminology ignores networks not formed in forests, like those found in prairies or between desert plants. Like the metaphors described before, it also evokes an image that may not be accurate, like a giant forest superorganism. And the popular interpretation of the term is not supported by current data. A highly influential paper in understanding large-scale common mycelial networks is Architecture of the Wood Wide Web by Baylor et al. in 2010. This study used tree and fungal DNA from soil cores to map a common mycelial network of two rhizopogon fungal species, incorporating 67 Douglas fir trees of varying ages. This established that the structure exists at a large scale, but this study did not assess large scale functionality. It connected different age cohorts of trees, showing that network access isn't something that's limited to just seedlings or just mature trees. Uh, the most interconnected tree surveyed in this study was connected to 47 other trees, um, and the most prolific rhizopogon individual connected to 19 different trees. This figure is one of my favorite figures from the Baylor et al. paper. This shows the connections between trees in a common mycelial network. The circles indicate trees and the lines are connection to other trees via rhizopogon mycorrhizae. The lines don't show the fungal individual, individuals themselves, just the connections formed when treating the trees as network nodes and the fungi as network links. The different sizes of the circles indicate age class. These larger trees are the oldest trees and the small yellow circles are the youngest trees. This arrow indicates the most highly connected tree, which is connected to 47 other trees. Many studies involving common mycelial networks involve the transfer of nutrients between plants. Nutrients like photosynthetically derived carbon um, or nitrogen can pass between plants via a common mycelial network. This flow between plants is bi-directional um, and it's determined by source-sync relationships. Most studies about common mycelial networks involve nutrient swapping. Um, and transfer of carbon via a common mycelial network has been shown in many situations, both in the field and in the lab, as well as between seedlings of the same species and seedlings of different species. Ecological significance of this transfer has been highly debated. Um, we know that this transfer happens, but we don't know if it happens in large enough quantities to affect long-term forest dynamics. Common mycelial networks have also been shown to facilitate the sharing of water between plants. Um, common mycelial networks can help plant communities be resilient, resilient against drought, and they can also help seedlings access deep water that has been lifted by older trees, 
um, and it can improve seedling survival during droughts. Uh, common mycelial networks can also be exploited by mycoheterotrophic plants. These plants obtain sugars from their fungal symbionts, which have in turn obtained sugar from a different host plant. One example of this in North America is Monotropa uniflora, also known as ghost plant or Indian pipes. These are two uh, tropical species that also participate in this side of the sort of association. Common mycelial networks may also be important for maintaining forest structure and ensuring the recruitment of younger generations of trees. Access to a common mycelial network may improve seedling recruitment, um, which may help facilitate a population of varying ages. Um, and common mycelial networks between two different species of trees may help facilitate secession in mixed forests. Recently, a few studies have been performed looking at how genetic relatedness affects interactions via a common mycelial network, namely the exchange of nutrients. In these studies, more carbon was passed to related seedlings than to unrelated seedlings. Suzanne Samard, the head scientist of this study, interprets this as a preferential treatment based on kinship, in which plants preferentially send carbon to their close relatives in order to further their genetic success, like someone choosing to send more grape juice to their sibling's straw than a stranger's straw. Merlin Sheldrake, another scientist who studies common mycelial networks, interprets this as the result of more similar mycorrhizal symbionts due to more similar genetics. Siblings may share more mycorrhizal symbionts than non-siblings due to similar genetics, leading to a higher transfer capacity like siblings sharing five straws to send grape juice instead of a single straw you share with a stranger. Recently, studies have started to shift away from focusing on nutrient exchange and are looking into how common mycelial networks may facilitate communication between plants. Plants can communicate using signal molecules, um, among other things, uh, which are released into the air or into a common mycelial network. These signal molecules can pass between plants via the common mycelial network um, and defense signals, which are passed in this manner, can warn other plants, um, which allows them to prime defensive compounds in preparation of an herbivore attack. A 2015 paper by Song et al. examined this communication via common mycelial network. The defoliation of seedlings triggers the release of defense signals, which were found to pass through a common mycelial network between Douglas fir and ponderosa pine. Reception of the defense signals elicits a enzymatic response in the receiver plant, and this study set a precedent to use enzymes as a signal proxy rather than sampling for the distress signal itself, um, which is an approach that I will be using in my study as well. Through the use of root barriers and prevention of aerial spread, um, the team of researchers was able to conclude that the mycelial network was the most likely signal pathway um, rather than other soil pathways or aerial spread. But why can't we just go out and test on these trees in the field to see once and for all how they function? Well, large-scale large studies are difficult to orchestrate. Many studies involve pulse labeling with heavy carbon, which would be very difficult with mature trees. 
the heavy carbon load required for pulsing a large tree would also be inefficient and expensive. Unfortunately, small-scale studies may not accurately reflect natural conditions. Saplings and mature trees may not utilize common mycelial networks in the same way. With this in mind, we have to ask the question that plagues a lot of ecologists with small-scale environmental setups. Can a small-scale result be, replied, be applied to large-scale ecosystems? We've taken a look at what we do know, but what don't we know yet? Where should we look next? There are a lot of things that we don't know yet, but here's a few questions that I find interesting. How do these networks function in natural settings and at a large scale? Can materials pass along a chain of plants connected by a common mycelial network instead of just plant to plant? Do materials pass between plants in ecologically significant amounts? And is it possible that common mycelial networks could function the way popular media suggests? With my research, I hope to answer uh, some of these questions. I will be examining the transfer of signal molecules through common mycelial networks, which will expand on work done by Samard, Song, and others. I will be connecting a chain of ponderosa pine trees in a common mycelial network grown in an experimental microcosm. My trials will involve stressing a hub tree and tracking the defense response along the chain. My study will hopefully bring us closer to understanding large-scale functionality of common mycelial networks in a forest setting. These are the questions I aim to answer. At what scale does a common mycorrhizal network facilitate transfer of materials? More specifically, can defense signals be passed along a chain of trees connected by a common mycelial network? Does the species identity of the ectomycorrhizal symbionts have an effect on signal transfer between trees? Um, and do different species of ectomycorrhizal fungi pass these defense signals equally well? Um, and if the common mycorrhizal network connecting several trees is formed by several species of fungi, uh, will this inhabit, inhibit the transfer of defense signals um, compared to a common mycelial network connected by a single fungal species? This is a diagram of my experimental microcosm setup. I will be assembling these microcosms out of acrylic sheets to grow my common mycelial networks in. These green circles indicate ponderosa pine seedlings. The dotted lines indicate root exclusion mesh um, to prevent root to root mingling. The arrows indicate direction of fungal growth when establishing the network. The middle and outermost trees will be inoculated with mycorrhizal fungi, which will grow away from that tree to inoculate the non-inoculated trees here and here. The different colors of the arrows indicate different species of mycorrhizal fungi. And this diagram shows my six treatments in the microcosms. Half of my treatments will have root exclusion mesh and the other half will not. Each of the three treatments that I describe will have a version with root exclusion mesh and a version without. Firstly, these treatments will have two trees inoculated with a rhizopogon species of fungi and one tree inoculated with a lacaria species of fungi. These treatments will have two, tre two trees inoculated with a lacaria species and one tree inoculated with a rhizopogon species. And then these control treatments will not be inoculated and will be non-mycorrhizal. 
This assortment of treatments will examine both functionality at a larger scale than has been previously examined, and it will examine how fungal species identity might impact functionality. The following are the next steps of my research. To set up my study, I will be preparing the seeds, fungal cultures, and microcosms. I will then plant the seeds into the microcosms and inoculate them with the proper fungal treatment. The seedlings and networks will grow in a controlled growth chamber for a period of four to six months, after which I will perform the stress trials and the enzyme assays. My expected data is going to be in the form of enzyme assays of several enzymes involved in the defense priming of plants. As plants receive the defense signal, activities of defensive enzymes should increase. According to results from previous studies, we know transfer should occur between two trees, but transfer to a third tree is unknown. This is a figure from the Song et al. paper showing their enzyme assays. We're going to focus on this area highlighted with a red box. This is the activity of a defensive enzyme across different treatments 72 hours after uh, defoliation or the stressor. This is enough time for the stress signal to pass to the other tree and for the other tree to react. So let's zoom in a little. Here is the isolated block of bars at 72 hours. Let me draw your attention to the two bars highlighted in a red box. The taller bar shows the enzyme activity of the receiver tree with root exclusion mesh, which means that it was connected by a common mycelial network. The shorter bar shows the enzyme activity of the receiver tree with a hyphal exclusion mesh, which means it was not connected by a common mycelial network. The taller bar is significantly higher, which indicates that a stress signal was being passed between the trees via the common mycelial network. So what are the implications of what I might find? If I find that the signal doesn't pass along the chain, that may indicate that these networks don't function on a larger scale like people think, or it may indicate that my methodology was flawed. If I find that the signal does pass along the chain, that could have really interesting implications for forest communities and forest ecology, and it will indicate that larger scale functionality may be possible. Either way, my results should lead to more answers and more questions about large scale functionality of common mycelial networks. If these networks are found to be functional at a large scale and important to the ecosystem, it could change the way we approach forestry and logging. This knowledge may also help us understand how forest ecosystems may react to climate change. Any questions? Willow, remind us what kind of plants you're using for your seedlings. I'm going to be using uh, ponderosa pines, um, partially because they... Uh, they associate well with several, like a lot of different species of ectomycorrhizal fungi. Um, and also because they were the receiver plants used in the Song et al. paper. Um, so I know that the enzyme assays should be effective with that, um, with that species of tree. What's the physical size of your, your boxes? How far apart are your sample tree seedlings? Um, the seedlings are going to be approximately uh, 20 centimeters apart, um, which is the distance that's been used in several Samard studies and the Song study. Um, Jeff has a question in the chat. Why not use a single type of mycorrhizal fungi? Um, I'm hoping to 
that's one of the factors that I'm looking at is how different species um, work in this uh, in this system. Um, and so a lot of previous studies have just used forest soil. Um, and so they don't really know which specific species of fungi are being used. Um, and by inoculating, I can control what species are being used. Um, and so since I can control that, we're also going to be looking at whether uh, fungal species identity um, affects how it uh, how the signal will transfer. Hunter, if you wish, you could just ask your question directly. Hi. Um, are, where will you be doing this study? Will it be outdoors or in a greenhouse or in Illinois uh, all year round? Or what's... It's going to be in um, controlled growth chambers at the Botanic Garden. So By the way, how, lo oh, how long will it go? Like with the ponderosa pines, how 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 much time will you give it? I'll be um, growing them for about four to six months. Um, that's how long uh, previous studies have let the pine seedlings grow for. Neat. Nee. Uh, Bridget, do you want to ask your question? Sure. I was curious if the soil is native soil that you're using or is the soil also introduced into your grid, like a specific soil? Yeah, I'll be using a, um, a sterile growing medium um, to avoid other potentially weedy mycorrhizas from um, interrupting the network. Um, so yeah, I'll be constructing my soil mix. Thank you. Nick asked a question about, can we receive updates on the experiment's progress? But my thought is, will you come back and tell us what happened with your experiment? Yeah, I could do that. That'd be great. Um, let me know directly, because I don't have a, I'm not a mind reader, so I don't know when your experiment will conclude. Yeah, yeah. Um, Greg and I can keep you updated on that. I remember, this is just stuff I've picked up coming to meetings over the years. But there were people who were trying to, let's say, grow pine somewhere. I, I use the tropics just as a as an example. But because some of the, the the mycorrhizal relationships the pine trees had were not present with other trees, they just couldn't function. Have you seen that in your literature? Yeah, I've seen. Um, I haven't seen that as much in relation to common mycelial networks specifically, but I've seen that a lot with um, mycorrhizal fungi more broadly, um, where species of plants that rely on mycorrhizal fungi for um, nutrient access, they, their growth is really stunted uh, when they don't have access to those um, species of fungi that are in their native soil. Um, and actually like to such a degree that that's become a part of some, um, forestry practices is just to automatically like inoculate them with mycorrhizae because they grow so much better. Hey Willow, did you mention how you're doing the stress? What, what, what you're doing for the stress? Oh, I don't think I did. I'm going to be, um, 
defol- I'm going to be defoliating the tree. I'm going to be snipping um, needles off the tree um, to simulate uh, herbivory stress. So how are you going to um, test like the results in, in the other trees within the box? Like how are you going to know that there's a reaction? That's what I'm going to be using the enzyme assays for. Um, I, guess I don't get that part. Yeah. So um, when a plant releases these, uh, these stress signals in response to, um, in this case, herbivory stress, um, it will, um, so the herbivory triggers the release of the stress chemical and then the stress chemical triggers um, the activity of these enzymes. Um, And the enzymes are used to prime the plant to make it um, either less palatable to herbivores or something like that. But um, when it's not just within the same plant, if other plants also get this trigger of the stress chemical, they'll also release the enzymes. Um, And so I'm going to be blocking other pathways so that it has to go through the common mycelial network. Um, I'm going to be bagging the trees so it can't spread through the air. And um, so when the other trees receive this stress signal, um, they're also going to start uh, producing these enzymes and having a higher activity of these enzymes. And that's what I'm going to be measuring is that activity of the enzymes. Um, Yeah. And like that one figure um, where the bars were increasing over time, um, Mm -hmm. that's as the signal is being passed to the other tree, those active, those enzyme activities are increasing. And that's what I'm going to be measuring. How do you measure the enzyme activity in the trees? I'm going to be sampling um, leaf tissue and uh, performing enzyme assays. I have um, chemical protocols to follow with that, uh, with um, preparing it and then putting it in a spectrophotometer. Um, what kind of, like, if you're, when you're taking the foliage off one tree, how quickly, if there is communication between the trees, like how long do you think it would be for the neighboring one to possibly show a reaction? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure, um, how long it'll take to get to the third tree, but um, based on the methodology of that Song et al. paper, um, it should be about 72 hours um, before we see spikes in the second tree. Uh, Katie, do you wish to ask your question, please? Okay, well, Katie asked, what kinds of method, methodological, sorry, methodological problems did you come up against before settling on your current methodology? Um, we, the uh, experimental like setup specifically went through several iterations before landing on this one. Um, we had thought of like a concentric ring design at first um, where the hub tree that we stress would be in the center and then we would have rings of trees um, emanating outwards. Um, and then we decided that just a extension of the um, microcosm design by Samard would probably be the most um, be the most efficient and also uh, 
we wouldn't have as much of a problem of pseudo replication. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm drawing a bit of a blank on specifics, but yeah, we had lots of different um, ideas thrown around before we landed on this one. Uh, so you have six different treatments. Do you have any replicates of those six? Yeah, I'll be assembling um, multiple microcosms for each. I think the the number is, uh, I think I'm having 18 total microcosms. So um, three so treatments wow. or three replicates per treatment. I've got a non-mushroom question. I really like your cursor with those little arrows that curl around. What's your app? I'm not sure. I just have, um, I don't know if I'm seeing the same thing you are. It's just the, um, I have a Windows operating system. Okay, well, if you can find out what it, where it comes from and pass it on to somebody. Okay. <laughs> aren't aren't you using know. Google Slides? I am using um, Google Slides, yeah. The, the cursor that's on my screen is just the standard cursor for my computer. Um, okay, well, what I'm seeing when you circle something is there's a little arrow with a tail behind it. Oh, that might be the... Um, yeah, that one. Yeah, that's the um, pointer function on the Zoom presentations. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's supposed to it's supposed to be like a little laser pointer. Okay. Show that again, Willow. Show that again so everybody can see where you. Because I just learned that one a couple of weeks ago. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's down at the bottom. If you just kind of like hover your mouse over the bottom, um, there's a little bar that comes up, and you can click on pointer and it'll pop up. But is that part of Google Slides and not actually Zoom? I think it's part of Zoom. Because um, that says slide 34. Zoom wouldn't know what slide you're on. Good question. Yeah, it might be part of Google Slides. I thought it was, I thought it was Zoom. <laughs> Thanks. I have a maybe not quite a related question, but I know with um, forestry, They've been inoculating um, pistolithus, I think, on a lot of the like conifer trees in the nursery. And I don't know if you or Greg maybe have a clue, like how long does that persist out after they plant the trees out? Because I don't know of people finding pistolithus fruit bodies out in forests. I can answer that if you don't want to, Willow. Yeah, I'm, I don't know the answer to that one. So yeah, uh, Pisolithus tinctoris, if people don't know it, it's like the ugliest mushroom around. It's just, this, yeah, it's just this massive black spore. Anyway, it's ugly. Um, but it was uh, the, um, the fungus du jour back in the 60s and early 70s because it... We lost you, Greg. Greg, your microphone is on, but we don't hear you. Uh, Hunter wants to know how to spell that. Any good guess? Um, the pisolithus? Yeah. Maybe put the, yeah. Anybody know what pisolithus means? <laughs> Anybody know what pisum is? I think uh, we're looking Peter for Peter says an whetstone. That's, lithus is stone, like lithography. Pisum is the P. So this is P stone. Because the, um, it's a, it's sort of like a big, ugly puffball. And, but the inside is chambered into little round, spore um, chambers and looks like when it's young, it looks like little um, 
cross sections of little peas packed together. So it's called pea stone. So Patrick, do you know the story or the information that um, Greg was about to convey? No, because it was my question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just I, I just thought of track. it. It's like they used to use this all over, and that's like, well, you know, people don't see it, so it's like, is it replaced? I'm guessing it's replaced by the native mycorrhizae. Well, I know. Um, uh, Greg Matt Nielsen is here, and uh, Pat, let me see, Pat Kemmeyer. Maybe one of them might know what no, the 1960s at, um, I can was. find out later from Greg. And Yeah, I don't know what the happened. I mean, he's supposed to be still on, but he is clearly... I don't see him on the list. Oh, he was at the top for a while. Okay, something happened. So we have a mystery, which we'll have to solve um, later. Matt? Doesn't know. He's a lichen guy. Well, I, but there's always Matt a possibility. A so, symbiotics. Do you, um, Willow, did you pick a rise? Do you know what rise of pogon species? I don't know if you said, or which lacaria species? We're not 100% sure which um, species we're going to be using yet. Um, it kind of depends on what uh, cultures we can get our hands on. So how do you have cultures of a mycorrhizal fungus? I'm not exactly sure how they keep the cultures actually, but um, they've been um, listed as available from various uh, from various like repositories and stuff like that. Okay. Um, I know Lacaria can be is a common partner with young seedlings and stuff. Is I don't I forget whether Rhizopogon has that role or not. Yeah, we mostly um, chose. Rise of Pogon because um, it's um, it will associate with Ponderosa pine, but it also was um, two Rise of Pogon species were what was used in the um, Baylor et al. paper. Okay, so you um, already know it works. Yeah. I've got uh, two questions. Um, one I'm wondering is, uh, are you trying to establish if the sort of communication with the plants, um, like the enzyme communication is done exclusively by mycorrhizal fungus or is it done also through the plant roots as well? And that's why you're trying to separate them. And then also what are the, you mentioned that, you know, 90% of plants, uh, are in this kind of network. What, uh, why do some plants not um, associate with the mycorrhizal fungus? Yeah, so um, with the 90%, um, it's not necessarily that 90% um, are part of a common mycelial network, um, but 90% um, have a symbiotic relationship with the uh, with the mycorrhizal fungi. Um, but that doesn't mean that they associate with the mycorrhizal fungi and are also connected to another plant um, via that mycorrhizal fungi. Um, and yeah, so some of them, like um, plants in the Brassicaceae family, uh, like mustards and stuff like that, they don't associate with mycorrhizal fungi um, for some reason. Um, 
but yeah, some, some plants just don't associate with mycorrhizal fungi. Um, and some, uh, some non-vascular plants don't associate with mycorrhizal fungi. And I'm sorry, I forgot, um, what your first question was. It was if the, uh, communication is always facilitated by the fungus or if the plants are directly communicating with each other. Right. Yeah. So we know that, um, at least with the release of these defensive compounds, it can also happen aerially. Um, these plants will also release the defensive signals. Um, oh, okay, great. I'll see out that. of their uh, out of their leaves, and other uh, plants can receive that through the air. Um, and there's some thoughts that they might also spread by direct root to root contact. Um, and so it's in these sort of studies, it's um, standard procedure to prevent other types of potential um, communication pathways to ensure that it is actually happening through the common mycelial network. Um, because that's been a common um, kind of rebuttal against uh, the idea of these common mycelial networks being functional is how do we know that it's via the common mycelial network and not via um, root to root or root to soil to root. Um, so by blocking off these other pathways, uh, we can see whether or not it's actually the common mycelial network. Meanwhile, Greg Mueller has come back, I hope. I am back, but first I'm gonna let Willow answer. Somebody asked, and maybe you answered it, but did you, they wanna know how you're gonna keep the roots out. Did you mention the, the root barrier? Yeah, I'm going to have um, 35 micron root exclusion mesh, um, which the holes are large enough for fungal hyphae to grow through, but small enough that plant roots cannot grow through them. Um, and that should keep the roots from touching directly. And with that, I was talking about um, back, in, back in the 60s. So... <laughs> So, you know, originally, you know, the idea of mycorrhizae was first discovered in the late 1800s. And for 70 years, it was considered, oh, isn't that cute? Some plants and fungi can get together. Um, as you were talking about, Kathy, at some point in time, they tried planting, planting trees in places that mycorrhizal fungi didn't occur because there was, those trees were not there. The big story is Puerto Rico. Um, and the plant, planted trees in Puerto Rico, they wouldn't grow because there's no mycorrhizal fungi, ectomycorrhizal fungi there. They brought the mycorrhizal fungi in, they grew well. So there was a guy, um, there was a, a proselytizer of mycorrhiza um, who convinced everybody they needed to inoculate every tree um, during reforestation with Pisolithus tinctoris. Cost a lot of money, was a lot more effort, and but everybody was doing it because they thought it would redo, it would improve uh, tree growth. Um, with a bit of time, they found out that it didn't. So the pendulum swung the other way and people said, oh no, we're not gonna inoculate trees. And now we know that it depends on the situation. If there was, you know, if it's a really big deforestation area or there is some other reason that the mycorrhizal fungi aren't available, then you inoculate the trees. 
normally there's enough residual or airborne spores to re-inoculate trees that you don't have to do it. Um, they'll re-inoculate themselves. So that's where we are with that. And that's why you don't see much PT, Patrick. But there are places in the world you still find a lot of. In a follow-up experiment, presuming that you, after you finish and finding out how the fungal network transfers the, the uh, signals, would you consider seeing what fraction of it is done by, the, by root transfer, what fraction by aerial, and what fraction by fungal? I think that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure exactly how I would um, set up an experiment to test that, but I think that would be an interest, a really interesting thing to find out. And I think it's also something that would... Um, that would vary depending on the situation. Um, I think it would vary depending on the, uh, the environmental situation, um, how many plants are growing around it and what other plants are growing around it. But yeah, I think that would be an interesting thing to find out. Pat, do you, Pat Kemmeyer, do you want to ask your question? Okay, how are, Pat's question is, how are the Western fires going to affect any of the soil fungi? Yes, yeah, sorry, I didn't have my mic on. Oh, I'm sorry. That's uh, all right. I know, I was just, I was interested, you know, if this is going to have any effect on any of the mycorrhizal fungi at all. Yeah, I think um, I've seen several studies about um, mycorrhizal fungi in, uh, after forest fires, um, and... It's been a little while since I read the studies. Um, I remember one study talking about um, mycorrhizal fungi and like spores left behind, like facilitating um, forest regeneration after a fire. Um, but I also imagine that if a fire is uh, like bad enough, um, it could be a disruptive force that... Uh, similar to logging might um, over time deplete the soil of its mycorrhizas. But yeah, I think it would, with the intensity of the um, fires this time around, it might be more um, disturbance. But uh, yeah, I have seen, um, yeah, I've seen several studies about that. Um, do you know more about that, Greg? Yeah, no, you answered that correctly. It depends on the intensity. So we actually did some fire experiments here in the Chicago area where we put in fire sensitive pellets. It was basically these plastic pellets that melt at certain temperatures and we put it at the surface, like just below the leaf litter, a couple of millimeters into the soil, whatever else. And the typical fires we have around here, these that are set for uh, forest management just skims over and it didn't even melt the pellets much into the into the soil at all so didn't have a negative impact but say if a if a tree falls and sit there and simmers for any length of time it actually sterilizes the soil all the way down that and kills everything there so so it depends on that that heat and that temperature and how long it stays hot in that spot but the other thing that does impact, and I've been talking to my colleagues in California, is some of the species are associated only with older trees. And so losing a lot of the older trees are going to have a negative impact on those fungi 
that are specifically uh, restricted to the older trees. So one of my colleagues, some of you, um, if you go to NAMA, whatever you know, uh, Christian Swartz and, uh, and uh, Noah Siegel, and they just did this wonderful book on the redwoods of California. A lot of the sites that Christian has been monitoring are totally gone. And so he's concerned what happened with those rare fungi that were in those sites. No, thank you. Another question, uh, if I may. Go ahead. Uh, so I've been down in Tucson for the winter where we were surrounded by some very serious fires within a couple miles of where we were. And um, the fires apparently were significant enough there that they were telling us that the a lot of the cactuses would not be would not repopulate um, the mountainsides. Um, I'm wondering if you know anything about do cacti have mycorrhizal fungi? There are buscular mycorrhizal. Ah, okay, thank you. So they'd still be impacted if the soil is sterilized. They're still going to be negatively impacted. Thank you. Hey, Greg, I don't know if you answered the question just before your computer crashed about the pisolithus and it's, you know, this mushroom that was so interesting back in the 1960s. Sure. Didn't I, I thought I did. Okay, maybe my... Maybe, well, maybe you, I don't know if you answered it or not. I wasn't sure. Well, they were. it was heavily used back in the 60s um, when they thought there was some benefit to really inoculate almost everything in our planting. And there was discovered that it really wasn't worth the effort and the cost to do inoculations in the nursery, unless the situation was that, say it is a really, really extensive clear cut that there's no way that spore rain can come in and reestablish mycorrhizas or what most uh, forestry do now, even with clear cuts, they leave what's called no offense here, uh, Willow, mother trees, uh, <laughs> but nurse trees um, that uh, provide a, a reservoir for mycorrhizal fungi that they can grow out to the new trees. So um, normally you're not um, inoculating trees before you anymore. And so you don't see pyzolithus as much. But there are some places in the world you go where they did that and you do find a lot of pyzolithus. Well, that, that, that reminds me, I remember years ago, uh, Dominic, the Italian enthusiast we used to, who used to be a member of the club, I remember he was dying to buy oak trees from Italy and import them that had been inoculated with, um, oh, crumb. With the truffles. Yes. Yes. Now, that's a whole different story, but it's it's in that same direction, isn't it? It is, except for the fact there, the truffles become more valuable than the tree. <laughs> and, he, and he, of course, he couldn't overcome something called the, uh, the, the USDA or was it the forestry department or whatever. Uh, but he was terribly enthusiastic. Yeah. Well, are there any other questions for tonight? Just to follow up on that, Patrick, correct sure. I don't think there's any Midwest successful truffle farms. There's a truffle farm in Texas. And a truffle farm in North Carolina, I believe, um, that has been successful, but for them, they're pretty persnickety, and we don't have the conditions right. So even if the uh, USDA would have let him bring it in, um, he wouldn't have been successful. Well, I've what seen, about? Oh, sorry. 
sorry, I've seen a lot of, um, I was looking into uh, different truffle farms um, in the United States, and I've seen that a lot of them run into the same issue of um, being impatient. Um, and because you can get them, um, you can get trees that have been inoculated with truffle spores that are produced in the United States, um, but it's still like the Paragord black truffle. Um, but you can get them as uh, hazelnuts and you can get them as oak trees. And a lot of people get them as hazelnuts because hazelnuts are much, much faster growing than oak trees. So um, they reach maturity quicker and you get a payout on your truffles quicker. But they're planting a lot of these hazelnut trees um, in like an orchard setting. And then they get hazelnut blight. Um, they get the filbert blight. And so their entire orchard um, gets taken out by the filbert blight um, because they're planting um, a like essentially a monoculture of these uh, truffle inoculated hazelnuts rather than um, waiting on a longer maturation period for the oak or planting a mixed um, orchard of oak and hazelnut. That's what happened to one truffle farm that was in uh, North Carolina. I don't know if it's the same one you had heard about, Greg, but um, they crashed because all their trees died from the filbert blight. It was uh, some truffle farms in Georgia. Truffle farms in Georgia, but I don't know what kind of truffle that was. But apparently they weren't. They were doing reasonably well a few years ago. Uh, just to comment on the other story, there was a case out in western Minnesota, uh, pra the prairie side of Minnesota. The highway department planted trees along the the highways out there to make them nicer, but the trees weren't growing until they figured out they needed some mycorrhizae out there. There is issue, you know, truffles are pretty challenging, but I don't know how successful it is. I've heard people think about, you know, planting them with chanterelles or other edible fungi. So you get a second crop out of it besides the tree, but you get the, the edible fungus. So are there any other, did I are there any other questions tonight? Okay, I guess not. And by the way, this reminds me, tonight's program, this is our um, scholarship presentation. Uh, Willow will get a, a $300 check. Um, it's our effort to support um, up and coming mycologists. And uh, we really appreciate you coming tonight, Willow. Thank you so much for having me. And Greg, thank you for, uh, highlighting her and we look forward to coming you coming back and telling us what happened yes absolutely great so we'll see you in a few weeks thank you so much any other questions comments if not adieu thank you thank you thanks so much